Euh, dites donc, Nadej, euh, comment aviez-vous recruté le nouveau si rapidement la dernière fois Bah, LinkedIn. Ah bon, parce que là, j'ai besoin de toute urgence d'un ingénieur en IA. Alors, où est-ce qu'on peut le trouver Bah, LinkedIn. Mais j'ai pas le temps de voir mille candidats, moi. Comment on va faire Bah, LinkedIn. Bah, 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 bah. Vu l'urgence, vous êtes vraiment confiante, Nadej Bah, oui. Avec 8 personnes recrutées par minute sur LinkedIn, pour tous vos recrutements, il y a, bah, LinkedIn. Pour en savoir plus, rendez-vous sur linkedin.com slash je recrute. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government's summer economic statement shows the forthcoming budget will contain spending and tax measures equal to 6.7 billion euro, with this year's budget being brought forward two weeks earlier than planned. How will this help you? I'd make the case that I think we've got the balance right so far overall, in that what we have done has offered help, but we know we need to do more. With Dublin Airport still experiencing travel disruption and over 100 soldiers on standby to assist, CEO Dalton Phillips gives us his reaction to the summer travel fiasco. We've made significant progress. COVID and that fifth wave is out there. And we felt that it would be prudent to engage with the Defence Forces. And later, six dead in a shooting at a Chicago July 4th parade. We bring you the latest from the US. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, at least six people died and 24 others were wounded in a shooting at a July 4th parade in a Chicago suburb. And officers are searching for a suspect who fired on the festivities from a rooftop. Officials told a news conference that the gunman remains at large and that a rifle was recovered from the scene. We'll return to this story later on in the programme. Now, here at home today, with the summer economic statement being unveiled earlier, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue has hinted at new subsidies for energy bills in this year's budget. Earlier this evening, Kira Doherty spoke to the Minister at the Department of Finance. Minister Pascal Donoghue, thank you for joining us on the Tonight Show. OK, so let's talk about the €400 million that was earmarked for cost of living measures. Will that include an energy credit? And will that credit be universal? The government has not yet made a decision in relation to what will be the scale of the uh, package that will take effect within 2022 to help with the cost of living. And that is a decision that we'll make uh, in September. As you know, we've pulled the budget forward into September uh, so that any decisions that we make, we've a better chance of being able to turn into a reality within this calendar year. It's been reported that Fianna Foyle want that measure to be targeted, but that Fine Gael believe that energy credits should be universal. Have you any difficulty with a universal measure like that? Well, I do believe we do need to have some universal measures in place. And the reason for that is that if we only intervene in our social welfare system, which we have done and we're going to have to do again because this is making things uh, so difficult for so many at the moment due to the rising cost of living, uh, but I also do believe you need to have some broad measures in place. And the reason for that is, is that if we only intervene through uh, the Department of Social Protection and through our social welfare policy, that often offers very little help to people who are at work 
and who could be on low to middle income but also really feeling the cost of living as well and really feeling the impact of higher pricing too. So that's why I think we need to have a mix. We need to have some measures that offer support to all or to most and accompanying that more targeted measures that help those that are really at risk of fuel poverty. This is notwithstanding the fact, Minister, that the ESRA and the Fiscal Advisory Council have all warned that future measures need to be targeted to ensure that they themselves don't become inflationary. Are you saying that's a risk you're willing to take to ensure those in the middle aren't left behind? So in fairness to the ESRI in particular, they recognise that measures such as the energy credits, the €200 Euro that we made available earlier on in the year, did really help with reducing the risk of poverty that many would face at the moment. And the way we will have to manage the risk that has been fairly flagged by the ESRI and by the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council is all about the scale of what we will do. Um, to try to get the balance right between helping but not making things even worse for ourselves and for our country than they are at the moment and creating new risks next year. What are you going to do for those people on social welfare payments or in receipt of the state pension who might be feeling the cost of living pressures most acutely? So we'll make a decision in relation to core social welfare rates as part of the budget process and they will then be enacted through the social welfare legislation that will follow on after that. They're a really good example, Kira, of those who are really facing the impact of the cost of living at the moment in that their, the cost of living, their outgoings have gone up, but of course their social welfare rates have not changed since budget day. And I'm particularly aware of the risks that pensioners, for example, could face who could be purely reliant on the state pension or may only have a very private, small private pension on top of the state pension. Um, uh, the higher cost of fuel, the higher cost of food is a particular challenge for them. You also outlined today, Minister, uh, one billion in tax measures. Who exactly are they going to be aimed at? Who are you hoping will benefit from those? Well, the the, so they will be measures that, because they're deployed through a tax code, will um, uh, benefit or impact on many. But those who I particularly have in mind are people who are, are on very much an average wage within our country, who if they get a wage increase to help deal with the cost of living, or if they work an extra hour of overtime, uh, lose over half of that in higher taxes as they pay more tax on more income. And at a time in which workers are receiving wage increases to help deal with the cost of living, I think it's only fair that we change our tax code to reflect that so that they don't end up losing a lot of that wage increase in higher taxes. Minister Pascal Donoghue, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by political reporter at TheIndependent.ie, Gabia Gattavecchia, Minister of State for Local Government and Planning, Peter Burke. Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy, economist Jim Power, and via Skype tonight, we're joined by Head of Social Justice at St. Vincent de Paul, Tricia Keelty. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, to come to you first, Jim Power, um, on this summer economic statement, um, the main takeaways as you see them, what struck you about today's announcement? Any surprises? No, there was no surprise because it had been well um, flagged over the last few days, particularly um, I, I guess we go back to this time last year when the last summer economic statement was published. They had set a medium term ceiling of 5% in public expenditure growth between 23 and 25. Um, following today's announcement, that's gone up to 6.5% for 2023. Okay, so, and that, that's equivalent to about 1.7 billion 
in extra spending for 2023, okay? Um, the package that was announced today, it's um, 5.65 billion um, will come through expenditure increases, and then there's going to be just over a billion on mm. um, tax measures. And I, I guess the key element of those tax measures will be to widen the various ban allowances and credits mm. to cater for a higher rate of inflation. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pretty expansionary package. Um, but when you're talking about the sort of cost of living crisis we have at the moment, um, it's a lot of money. And if it's spread very thinly, um, it's not going to have that much impact. I mean, I think these measures, particularly on the social welfare side, have got to be very targeted because the tax or the credit we got in electricity bills a few months ago, um, you know, it was very expensive and really made mm. no difference to a lot of people who didn't really need it. So I think a targeted approach rather than a universal approach. But I guess the real politic of this would dictate otherwise. Um, yeah, and I know a lot has been made about that, that universal spend versus targeted measures and the pressure indeed that the government is under to deliver on those who need it most, Gabia. What was the mood at the briefing today, that figure that's been put out specifically for this cost of living package of 400 million euro? We heard there from Pascal Donoghue, he wasn't willing to comment on the scale of support and, and the, the size of that package specifically. Yeah, so my understanding of it is that, of course, we're going to have the budget now in late September. But alongside that, government is now working on a series, as well, a set of measures, one-off cost of living measures that would specifically help people that are struggling. So, of course, when you hear that figure of 400 million, now Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, at the briefing explained to journalists because he was asked about this 400 million, what does it actually mean? He said that it, this will cover those one-off cost of living measures um, that will be put in place by, before the end of the year, but also any increases to public pay. Of course, those negotiations are still ongoing and the government is also facing so a lot of pressure falls into on that. It. So the breakdown of that, that, the hundreds of million, we don't exactly know how much, but it's, it, it's touted right. to be rumoured to be around 400 million. Sure. Well, it's, well it, we know that that 400 million is there, but I'm sure that if government ministers did make, because I did specifically ask about, well, you know, if whatever this package that you're putting in place, there isn't a figure on it per se either. So perhaps it might be the case that if they do feel we do want to do, you know, whatever, some big massive thing, we need more money for it, it could be gotten out of somewhere. But I think, you know, certainly the things that we've heard a lot of indications about, you know, the pensions, the increase in social welfare rates, they're all going to be part of the budget. But the one-off measures could include things like the 200 um, energy credit that we've already seen that might be put in place again. Okay, well, let's bring um, Trisha Keelty in from Vincent de Paul. When you... Um hear about now this this package that's being announced do you believe it's substantial enough and do you think it's going to help people who are most impacted by the high cost of living Tricia? I suppose from our point of view I think the package of support shows that there is enough resources there to protect people on low and fixed incomes and invest in services like childcare, like housing and like transport but really it comes down to the government making the right decisions properly poverty proofing those decisions and making sure that the resources are directed at those on low and fixed incomes. So from our point of view, really in relation to the social welfare increases, they need to be set, core rates need to be increased by a minimum of 20 euro. It would, it would mean 17 euro would just be standing still and we need to address the high levels of poverty as well that we see in this country. So that's why we need a 20 euro increase. And for children who are in very, very poor households, 
there's the qualified child increase and that needs to be increased um, by 12 euro for children over 12 and by 7 euro for children under 12. And we think broad based measures like the uh, electricity credit, while they do help people, really aren't using the resources to the best um, of the state's ability. So, for example, the, the energy credit could cost in the region of 300 million. And for the same amount of resources, you could actually deliver genuinely free primary and secondary education, which would make a huge difference to families struggling across the country. For 68 million, you could expand the fuel allowance, which is a vital form of support to people in receipt of the working family payment. So that's that would be a major um impact on households who are at work and who are struggling as well. And Tricia, just the opposition have been strongly calling for an emergency budget for measures to be in place now, not this early announcement around a budget at the end of September, but for something that will immediately help families. Would you agree with that? And what do you think are the most pressing things that should happen now, in your opinion? So I think there's a couple of options, you know, the double... Um, Christmas bonus type payment for people on social welfare could be paid. We're already taking calls from families who are really worried about back to school costs already. So we really need to help those families as well because that will come before budget day um, and those pressures will really pile up, pile up on parents as well. I suppose from our point of view, it's really more important to get longer term permanent measures to address the inadequacy of our social welfare system to ensure that people who are experiencing energy poverty can access access the fuel allowance. So we need to get the package of supports right um, and we need government to act as quickly as possible as well. All right. OK, I want to bring Matt Carthy in here. Matt, um, overall, we're hearing about this potential package of 400 million euro. We know, indeed, listening to the minister, they're not putting an exact figure on that. But from Sinn Féin's point of view, you'd like to see a billion euro added to that if it is, in fact, 400 million. Yeah, I think what people needed to hear today wasn't potential measures that may or may not be brought about in September. They needed government to understand the challenges that they're facing in the here and now. We've been calling for several months for government to introduce an emergency budget because people need emergency support. Um, just to reiterate what we've just heard, um, I'm told charity shops are inundated with calls in relation to school uniforms. People do not know how they are going to face the increased um, costs that they will face for the basics of allowing their children to go to, to school. That's in recognition as well that come September, heating and energy costs and bills are going to start rising again. So to be quite honest, I think today was an awful lot of spin and deflection as opposed to what okay. people really need to hear is what specific supports are government going to provide in the here and now? And the answer is none, okay. not until September at the very Peter earliest. Burke, a spin and deflection and essentially, did the government miss a trick here? I don't think so, because <clears throat> obviously the evidence doesn't back that up in terms of the measures that have been taken already. No, and I know, some that and, I know. and a lot from. has been discussed around the measures taken already. I'm yeah. just listening there to yeah, what Trisha Kielty had to say yeah. about the back-to-school costs. 25% of parents, according to Vincent Paul... Vincent okay, let Paul, me finish there. Get, no, no, just for one second, because I know you're talking about measures that are already in place, but just that figure around back-to-school costs, which are pressing... Mm -hmm. For many families now, 25% of parents will get into debt over paying those costs. And also the idea of a double welfare payment, that this could come in the summer instead of later on in the year. 
So we have the back-to-school payments to come out yet from the Department of Social Protection to assist with that. We also have changes to the further and higher education budget, which will increase the maintenance grant, increase the threshold of the means test, and also reform of the adjacent rate, which will improve for a lot of students. Uh, those measures have yet to kick in that will support families. So the government has to uh, form a judgment here. If they have an emergency budget, like Matt is asking for, and obviously when we come to September, that we have a situation where interest rates are increasing, where the weather obviously is getting worse, and there's going to be continued inflation as is forecast, well, then you can't go every month and follow an inflation trail because what many won't uh, take uh, for granted, or some people do, is that we have a quarter of a trillion euro of debt in this country. Interest rates are going up, and the worst that could happen is that if we follow inflation whereby we can't sustain okay. the expenditure streams, well, then the most vulnerable will pay a heavy price, like they did in this country. The vulnerable back are a paying ago. a heavy price, and but essentially what you're saying to them I'm is that we can't support you today in case no. your situation well, is even is worse saying, later on in the Matt year. What Matt is saying we'll give cash payments for everyone no. that has an income of under 60,000. You will give 1,500 euro of a rent credit. We're going to yes. increase the Can minimum I, wage. We're going to cut that, childcare though, by a quarter. What, what about the but tax? What like, about the tax? That's right. Which, those, which of those proposals do you oppose? No, it's not. It's you all. It's all. all them it's all costs. Absolutely can't. Bear with me one second. I just want to ask you specifically on the tax package. Then you're saying what Sinn Féin are calling for for this this payment to families. I think it's a thousand euro or one-off payment. Um, there will be tax breaks. I think that, you know, Leo Radker has kind of mentioned it again today, that there's room and there's space and we need to, um, you, you know, we need to see tax breaks there. I mean, that's likely to, to help middle-income earners, but also high-income earners. No, it won't, because when you look at the first instance, when it's targeted at those that are on the average wage of €40,000, essentially what you're doing is you're reducing the burden of taxation on that middle cohort. 35% of uh, people now are outside the tax net in this country because we've increased it substantially. We've increased the minimum wage seven times. But my core point is that, you know, opposition can promise things every single day of the week, but when it goes wrong, they won't have to account for okay. that. And that needs to protect the most vulnerable from uh that. Um, on, on that, and uh, Peter mentioned it there, the issue around debt and spending, Jim, um, do you think that there is a, a, a need for abundant caution or is there, there too much caution? I mean, the coffers no, I, are looking I, quite good. I, I think there is a need for caution. I mean, the exchequer returns we got today for the mid-year were really strong. Um, total tax revenues are 25% ahead of this time last year. That's about £7 billion, OK? So uh, revenues are flowing in. But the biggest driver of the overshoot is on the corporation tax side. And there are no guarantees about the sustainability of that. A mistake we made in this country um, 15 years ago was to spend tax revenues that proved transitory, the construction-related ones. And when those tax revenues disappeared, suddenly we were left with this massive spending bill with no taxes to pay it. So I think we have to be cautious about spending uh, because there isn't a money tree out there. I mean, we have a debt of 236.6 billion at the end of last year. That's 106% of gross national income. That's equivalent to yeah. over 47,000 for every man, woman, and child in the country. And furthermore, if you look out over the next decade, um, we have a high level of debt. Debt servicing costs are going to start rising shortly because okay. interest rates on the way up. We have, we have a huge demographic issue. Right. We have slaunch care. But the, the pressure on spending is just going to intensify. And if Matt is in the next government, I'd love to know how they're going to handle well, all of that. Um, um, we'll get well, back can, to can I just make minute. one point in respect, of the, in respect of the debt? Because a large part of the debt, as you know, Jim, came about because of the bank bailout. Because yes. when banks were in trouble, government overnight 
changed the entire economic system. So do we keep, make, do we keep the making the same mistake again? Sorry, just let me taxation, make his point. Taxation is raised in order to fund public services and to support citizens. Our citizens need support right now. What Peter Sarah, is saying, they can wait. I and never they, that. And they I can wait until such a point as the government will introduce does, does minimum measures point. to the tune of 400 okay, million when they need more than that. But we should be very about the 30% income tax rate that Fine Gael is proposing. It has floated for about 20 years now. No, what we want to see is the taxation that is raised invested into public services and supporting vulnerable citizens. That's what's needed in the here and now. Obviously, on an annual basis, we produce our fully costed um, budget for the year to come. Fair. But here in now, we are dealing with a scenario that nobody envisaged, including well, the Matt fact talks, that um, at the time of well, the budget, we, uh, we projected well, an 8.3 billion, billion deficit. We actually have a 1.6 billion deficit. 75% of our deficit was based upon financing the running of the country, the revenue running of the country during the recessionary time. Now, 75% of it. And what you want to do is increase the base cost of the country to an unsustainable position when we're relying on tax streams that are not solid. And you just have to be careful on that. We want to protect the most that vulnerable. What about that underspend with that extra money in the coffers that we heard about that isn't actually being spent? Um, details of that coming out yeah, in so recent we're, we're weeks. Talk, see, it's hard to see what that will be. If you look at six months, we've earned a four billion surplus. But if you look for the previous 12 months, it's around 2.2. So we have to see what that will be in the outturn. But we have to be careful in terms of driving ourselves into borrowing from yeah. day-to-day expenses. All right. and Listen, I, that, want to bring, I just want to bring Tricia back in here. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard that back and forth um, between government and opposition on this. From your point of view, um, do you believe uh, you're focused obviously on people that you're trying to help. For, for people watching at home who may be looking for your services, what will they think about that, about you know, government caution over spending in this area? I suppose really people need assurances, they need certainty. For people in poverty, you know, it's so hard to plan for the future. So that's why we really need to have a budget that is comprehensive, that is properly poverty proofed, and that's underpinned by uh, the principles of equality. That's so important for people. People need to be able to plan. They need to know that the public services are of good quality and are there for people when they need them and that they can rely on their social protection system that is strong enough to help people when they fall on hard times as well. OK, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to you, Tricia, um, and to Jim Power. The rest of the panel will be staying with me after the break. CEO of Dublin Airport Authority, uh, Dalton Phillips, gives his reaction to the army being on standby at the airport this week. Welcome back. It was meant to be a summer to remember with ideas of heading off to sunnier climes on the minds of many Irish holidaymakers. But instead, the travel experience has been one to forget with chaos still looming at Dublin Airport. Well, shortly before coming on air, I spoke to the CEO of Dublin Airport Authority, Dalton Phillips. I began by asking him about the 130 soldiers being on standby to assist at the airport and if it's likely that those military personnel will be moving in this week. Well, Clara, I hope it's uh, very unlikely. Um, we have made significant progress in the last six weeks in terms of our overall security uh, pro program at Dublin Airport. And 93% of people over the month of June got through security in under 45 minutes. And in fact, 77% got through in under 30 minutes. So we've made significant progress. COVID. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And that fifth wave is out there. And we felt that it would be prudent to engage with the defense forces and say, look, in the unlikely event that we had a COVID outbreak in our security operations, and I'm talking about more than 20% people being impacted and affected by COVID, we, you know, we would like to be able to turn to the defense forces. Now, we don't have that level of COVID anywhere near it, um, but I think it's prudent. 90% of all flights in and out of this country go through Dublin Airport, and I think the public wouldn't thank us if we let them down, we let them down on the 29th of May. We don't want to let them down again. Let's talk about those those COVID figures. So the plan you're saying will be triggered if more than 20 percent of airport security staff are out of work with COVID. Are you close at all to hitting that percentage or that standby date of July 6th, which is this Wednesday? Is that likely to be a point that the army move in? Are you essentially ruling it out for this week? Uh, ruling it out for this week. And look, our our security teams have just done an outstanding job. They've all put their shoulder to the wheel. And as I said, we, we, the, the, the proposition has improved dramatically from what happened on the 29th of May. So the army was just prudent contingency in the event. Now, we are seeing a huge amount of COVID going through the industry. We've seen massive levels of flight cancellations. In fact, 88 flights in and out of Dublin have been cancelled in the last five days. That impacts about 13,000 people. Clearly, we, we, we can't control the airlines and the, and the challenges they have around COVID. But from our side, from a security point of view, prudent planning. Uh, but you don't believe they will be needed this week at least, although they are on standby, we understand, for six weeks. How many extra staff have you hired since you appeared before in Iraq this committee when it was in the eye of the storm in terms of staffing levels at the airport? Have your levels come up since then? So our levels now, Claire, are essentially where they were back in 29 before the pandemic started. So we've almost doubled the amount of staff we have in the organization. So an extra 450 people. 
have come in. So we'll have 920 officers at the end of this month, and that will be above where we were in 2019. Are you experiencing any delays in terms of um, staff training, vetting procedures? I know that you said it was problematic and it was causing delays to getting, crucially, getting staff on the floor. Look, it remains a problem, and, and anybody who has lived abroad over the last five years for more than six months has to have foreign disclosure. That's not just for Dublin Airport employees. I mean, that's for everybody in the aviation sector. And so that does take time. But we're working through it. And clearly, we've made huge strides from where we were in May. Um, it's still finely balanced. The numbers are huge going through the airport at the moment, Claire. It's essentially 100,000 passengers going through every day. And you may remember most commentators, and we felt this, felt that aviation wouldn't return until 2024, 2025. And we're in a situation now uh, uh, where we're already back in 2019. Yeah. Are you ruling out those sort of flight restrictions that we have seen at other airports as a result of delays there at Gatwick and at Schiphol that in, um, in Amsterdam, that they, they have... They have, in fact, imposed flight restrictions. Is that something um, that you can categorically rule out happening at Dublin Airport? Absolutely. And that's why we said, look, in terms of prudent planning, that's why we wanted to engage with the Defence Forces in case we had a COVID outbreak. We don't want to have any flight cancellations and it's, there's no proposal and we don't want to go there. Having said that, there is an awful lot of challenge, as I said, in the network with just airlines having to cut huge amounts of flights voluntarily because of their own challenges around crewing and staffing. Okay, CEO of Dublin Airport Authority, Dalton Phillips, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Well, for more on this in the wider COVID situation, Gabia, Peter and Matt are still with me in studio and joining us via Skype is Professor of Immunology, Paul Moyna. Um, to come to you first, Peter Burke, when you hear about what Dalton Phillips had to say there around the handling, I suppose, of services and operations at Dublin Airport this summer, what do you make of it? Well, you can see a plan was put in place once this huge problem happened at the end of May, which is very, very frustrating, I will acknowledge. Uh, it was awful for people and an awful bad message for our country to be sending out when you know, people could not get through the airport. But I think being prudent, if you're looking into the future and you see that you know, 8,000 flights have been cancelled around Europe, uh, COVID has increased in a lot of areas. In Omicron, at the height of it, uh, one in five of security staff were out. And you can see that trigger that he has to prepare for that because we're up at 50,000 passengers a day going through the airport now mm -hmm. currently. So we have to have these contingency plans to ensure that we can sustain it and that we don't ever go back to what happened in May because that was you know, catastrophic in terms of the message for our country. <clears throat> a desperate measure, Matt, but do you think a necessary one with the army? I mean, we, we heard Dalton Phillips saying there that, look, they're just not needed this week. Well, I was struck when Dalton Phillips said that uh, security staff were outstanding in Dublin Airport and I would agree with that and they've been working on the very difficult situation. And I would say it's more than you could say for the CEO and management who allowed such a debacle to transpire because let's remember they made a thousand workers redundant and many would suspect because they intended to employ new people on poorer contracts so it was um, it, it, it was something that was proven disastrous for many people many people's summers were ruined because they missed their flights so if this, again there's human side to all of all of this um, and you know I have to say, in that context, it's difficult to have confidence in the, in the Dublin Airport Authority. We hope that they prove themselves. Yes, arguably, it's probably um, 
correct that there is the contingency measures in place, that the Defence Forces are on standby. But again, we need to ensure that they are workers also, that they are actually supported in making that transition if that's what's being asked of them. Um, Gabby, just on, on COVID, because that's what's triggering the potential for the army mm -hmm. to move in here and the numbers we're seeing. Um, we heard Micheál Martin um, talking about the disruptive influence all of this is having. How worried are the government about it? And indeed, in their forward planning, when they're looking beyond this summer, we're now in the middle of a, of a summer wave. What's it going to be like come the autumn? Yeah, just to go back on Minister Peter Burke's point there of how bad this looks that Dublin Airport is not able to function and literally get passengers out of the country. Cabinet ministers were told in recent weeks by DAA themselves that negative passenger sentiment might actually see a fall in passenger numbers in the coming weeks. And yes, you're right, COVID is having, of course, a return. And that's what's seeing flight cancellations by separate airlines. People want to travel and then, of course, their holidays are ruined. Government at the moment, there's not huge worry about it, but there are inklings of things that are coming down the track. So, for example, we did see cabinet ministers agree that legislation would be put in place from the return of mandatory masks if they are needed. So we might see a return of mask wearing, for example, in public transport, mm. in shops, hospitals, like we saw um, before. I suppose, what does it mean for restrictions? I mean, there's definitely no appetite for a return to things like COVID certs or, you know, even working from home. Of course, uh, Tanish Ali Radker, you know, he wants to work from home to become a part of normal life. But COVID is rearing its ugly head again. And of course, we do know that at the end of the summer and in the early autumn, we are going okay. to see the rollout of that fourth COVID uh, booster mm. um, Vaccine dose, a second booster for the general population. And NIAC still uh, considering what's to be done around um, a booster vaccine for the under 65s and those other measures. I want to bring Paul Moyne in here. Um, Paul, this summer COVID wave that we're experiencing, tell us why you think it's happening now. Probably a couple of reasons, Claire. We, we seem to be going into this pattern, this periodic pattern where we're getting waves, maybe at a frequency of every four months or so. And I think there's two main factors for that. First of all, after we get vaccinated or boosted uh, or after a wave of infection, our antibodies tend to stay at reasonably high levels for about four months or so. And then they wane. And I think then we can become susceptible to infection again. Importantly, the vaccines are still doing a really good job in terms of protecting us against in serious illness, but we do become susceptible to infection again. And then, of course, we, we see the emergence of these new variants periodically. And currently, we're looking at subvariants of Omicron BA4 and BA5, and BA5 is the dominant one now in this country. And this is very good and very efficient in terms of evading the antibody-mediated immunity that we generate in response to vaccines or infection. Even if um, vaccines are waning, and I'm thinking of those booster shots that many people got at Christmas time, um, it still means that you're less likely to end up in hospital or the severity of the illness will certainly be lessened. Is that what you're saying, Paul? Yeah, it's a really important point, Claire. So when we're vaccinated, we generate two types of immunity. We make antibodies. Antibodies protect us from getting infected, but we also activate and stimulate T cells. T cells are the cells that protect us. If we are infected, they go in and kill cells that are infected by the virus. And that stops the virus from getting from the upper respiratory system to the lower respiratory system. And that is the reason why these vaccines are protecting us against serious illness. Luckily, fortunately as well, the Omicron variants 
they primarily infect the upper respiratory system and are less efficient at infecting the lower respiratory system. That in combination with the fact that vaccines allow for effective clearance of the virus if you are infected, that's the main reason why these vaccines are working so efficiently in terms of protecting us against serious illness. And we're seeing, Paul, that masks are back on the political agenda, at least again. Micheál Martin um, signalling the wearing of face masks could return for retail uh, settings. We know it was brought before Cabinet as well about the reintroduction of legislation around that. What do you think about masks as a, as a mitigation measure and their use? Um, do you think we should be wearing them again in, in, in bigger numbers? I think high quality masks certainly protected. It's very difficult overall the population level in terms of getting a quantitative measure of how protective masks are. If you recall the first Omicron wave back around Christmas time, January time of this year, basically that burned through the population. We had about half the population infected over a period of four to six months. And that was at a time when uh, masks were mandated. So it's very difficult, especially and it's very difficult to get that in terms of how protective masking is against these subvariants. Certainly in terms of the well-fitting FFP2 masks, I think they certainly uh, do protect. And certainly in enclosed places, I think people make their the own, own decision. The other masks, do you believe the jury's out on them and their effectiveness against um, uh, Omicron? Yeah. There have been some randomised controlled trials looking at this and certainly in terms of any of the protective effects, it seems to be associated with the, the higher efficiency masks like the FFP2. So certainly in terms of going forward, I think there should be more focus in terms of the quality of masks that has been used. All right. Um, what do you make of that, McCarthy, in terms of the advice on it, sort of the, the idea of bringing masks back, only have them if they're the, the, the FFP2? P2 ones or the um, higher medical grade masks? Yeah, I think it's natural that these things will evolve. I remember when Neffet were advising against introducing a mask advisory, never mind a mask um, mandate. Um, I, I've seen an increase in people wearing masks. I think if um, government were to advise on the back of public health advice that people should wear masks, I think that mm. they would do so. I would certainly hope that we would avoid returning to the mask mandates um, through legal measures that we've seen in the past. What do you think? Should more be done um, in the way of, of staving off COVID or doing something about this current wave? Yeah, or there's or a couple, should we focus uh, efforts on, on the autumn? Well, the one thing that always strikes me throughout all of this is that we haven't focused on, particularly at times of the year like this, on the benefits of proper ventilation in premises. You still go into places where windows are shut, doors are, are shut, where, mm. um, and that is one area that has actually been proven to be very effective in terms of mitigating against um, COVID. So I think one of the things we could do is increase a public awareness of that aspect. But, and then there are other areas uh, as well, but it's you know, hopefully not going to return to the situation that we were in last Christmas, it, for example. It was uh, Leo Radker who said, live your life, essentially live your life in the summer and enjoy the summertime because we don't know what's, what's coming down the line in the autumn. Are we looking at a, a bigger booster programme being rolled out then? We already see that NIAC are considering a booster programme for under 65s. Yeah, I don't think it's a seasonal virus anymore. I think uh, what Paul is saying there is that it's more <clears throat> every few months you get a significant wave of it. But I do think uh, we really need to ensure we don't take our eye off the ball on that because the data from our ICUs, those 33 people that are in ICUs tonight, it's a very significant amount that haven't got uh, vaccinated at all. So I think we need, really need to work We're hard. hearing much in the way of government messaging, yeah, Peter. Yeah, and I do, need, I do think we have to improve on that. I think as we head towards uh, the autumn, and this wave is obviously going to yeah. subside if we're going by the trajectory in Europe, but we have to push hard now on our over 65s, immunocompromised, and obviously we're waiting on the advice from NIAC for everyone else for the additional booster. That's the secret, 
I think, uh, going into uh, the winter to get that message out there. But it was a decision the government took to reduce the <coughs> amount of data that we actually are getting on COVID now. I mean, you don't hear about the daily cases at all. You don't really know how much people are in hospital. And when the numbers are very, very high, it's just very hard to know what's okay. actually going on. All right, there, we'll have to leave it. My thanks to my panel and Paul Moyna, who joined us on Skype after this break. We'll bring you the latest from the US, where six people have lost their lives in a 4th of July shooting in Chicago. Stay with us. Welcome back now to an ongoing story in the US. Tonight, six people have been shot and killed and around 24 others injured in a shooting at a 4th of July parade in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park. Well, for more on this, we're joined by Washington correspondent Simon Marks. And Simon, what more can you tell us about this shooting that happened in the middle of festivities uh, for Independence Day in the US? Well, it's just astounding, isn't it? I mean, America's birthday being marked with a mass shooting in an affluent suburb uh, of Chicago. A massive manhunt now underway. The gunman believed to be a white male between 18 and 20 years old. Uh, and police believe that essentially he was acting as a sniper from a rooftop overlooking what should have been a very bucolic scene. The 4th of July parade in the Highland Park suburb uh, of Chicago. The traditional floats uh, uh, were accompanied by uh, fire trucks, police, uh, a klezmer band, all aspects of the community uh, reflected in that parade. And 14 minutes after it began, shots started uh, echoing out uh, from above the, the skies above the parade. People started running, fleeing the scene. Uh, at least six people killed, around 25 transport to hospital and there is a fear uh, that that death toll could rise because some of those in hospital very seriously injured. Simon, what do we know about the gunman? Has he been apprehended or is he still at large as we speak? Still very much at large. Uh, the community was told to shelter in place and that order has not yet been lifted. Uh, police will not be drawn on whether they are aware of the gunman's identity. But tellingly, this investigation is now a federal investigation. The Department of Homeland Security uh, is involved. That might suggest, not definitely suggest, but might suggest that they believe that there was a political motive for all of this. And within the last few Minutes, President Biden addressing a July the 4th celebration at the White House uh, made only an oblique reference to what took place, saying to the crowd, you all heard about what happened today. Each day we are reminded there's nothing guaranteed about our democracy. So he was certainly uh, couching this as an attack on democracy, but whether it was politically motivated, we won't know until we learn more about the investigation. Okay, Simon Marks in Washington, thank you for joining us with the very latest on that shooting in Chicago. Now, joining me in studio is climate journalist John Gibbons for a look at some of the big climate stories that have been making headlines uh, today. I want to come to you first, John, on the issue around solar panels and climate scientists at University College Cork have, 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 have done the maths on this and, and really shown the benefits of solar panels should we choose to really employ them on a large scale in this country. That's right, Claire. At the moment, about 24,000 uh, homes 
have solar panels in place. Uh, the, the UCC study reckons that could be as high as a million homes that are suitable for solar panels. And it's reckoned if this were fully deployed, we'd be looking at about a quarter of the electricity requirement, the domestic electricity requirement for Ireland could be met by on-roof solar panels. And in a, in a sense, there's, there's really only upsides for this. It gives, uh, gives the householder uh, a certain amount of independence. You can probably get payback with the SEAI grants uh, within about seven years, Claire, for your investment in this. So that basically means after that seven-year period, you have a certain amount of free electricity, possibly between three, four, five hundred euros a year. Doesn't that depend on the type of solar panels that you put in? So some of them will heat hot water and then it's the ones which kind of go back into the grid are the best, really, that are available, and that's really where you're going to save your money. Yeah, the, the, the type you're describing there are called solar PV, or solar, solar photovoltaic. That's where you, you, you generate uh, electricity directly from sunlight and, indeed, from daylight. I think it's important to say that, by the way, that daylight will also produce electricity. So, so many people in Ireland are a little sceptical at the idea how much we sunshine are. do we get in Ireland, and would, would a solar panel really work? But, in fact, because of our, of our uh, high latitude, we get quite a lot of daylight. So our solar panels work reasonably well. Now, of course, they're seasonal. They work best really in the summer. Uh, but you will get a certain uh, feed-in from, uh, I suppose, mid-spring mm. until, until uh, I guess, late autumn. And our European counterparts have certainly been better at using solar panels than we have. We could take a leaf out of their book. That's right. Germany, for example, uh, really went, went uh, all in on this. And right now, and Germany is a huge economy, and 10% of their total electricity production comes from the, the solar sector. And in Britain, for example, uh, on a certain days in June, we've seen up to 22% of their total electricity coming from uh, solar. So that tells us, and Britain, their, their sunlight quality is no better than ours. That tells us that if we invest heavily in solar, we have, we have a way to go. And Obvi is that the plan? Is that the government plan? Do you think it's contained strongly enough within the climate targets that we do that? Well, we know, for example, that already we're committed to 70% renewable energy on our grid by 2030. And in fact, the government intends to exceed that. And I believe they will. I think they can hit 80%, Claire. That will be a combination of onshore wind, offshore wind and solar PV. OK, I just want to look at what we're seeing happening around the world right now and devastating scenes from the Alps where we're... we're uh, seeing the collapse of a glacier uh, causing a number of, of deaths there. And I think um, in Italy, certainly they have announced and they have confirmed this is down to climate change. This is what we expect. Uh, we're going to see more and more of these events, climate destabilisation events. If you go back to last summer, Claire, we had devastating, deadly floods in Germany, uh, in Belgium and in parts of France that killed dozens of people. And this was down to extreme precipitation. And we know, for example, that every one degree increase in temperature leads to a 7% increase in precipitation. So we know already that the atmosphere is carrying maybe 7 maybe 8% more precipitation than it was carrying 100 years ago. That's an incredibly large change in a really short period of time. And as we saw in the Alps this week, you're going to see devastating climate impacts like that. And people often think these are about faraway places. Often We often think that's about the third world. But we had an incident in Australia the other day where over three feet of water came down mm -hmm. in a devastating burst. In a see very... some images there of the flooding that we're seeing um, in Sydney and certainly it's been hit so badly this year. And what that stresses, Claire, is that this is a global crisis. This isn't just about Europe. This isn't just about South America. This isn't about Asia. This is happening in both hemispheres simultaneously. As we saw last year, last summer was a devastating summer and I'm afraid we could be in for a lot more of the same this year.
Yeah, and Australia now, they have a new government in, but of course they have, up until now, had quite a strong a sort of climate denial uh, culture there. That's right. Uh, it's, it, it has been a factor, really, of, of it's often been noted that the, the countries that have a very strong presence of uh, the, the Murdoch press, which is uh, Britain, Australia and America, that tends on climate denial, unfortunately, travels with that. It's through the Anglophone countries. Uh, and yes, we have a change in Australia now, but our ordinary Australians are reaping the whirlwind of, of a decade and more of climate denial. Um, and I suppose we're likely to see more of these style events in the years to come. Indeed, in the near future, would you say, John? I'm afraid it's an absolute certainty. I mean, for example, 2021 was considered to be one of the most extreme summers in history. Unfortunately, the projections for the 21st century, Claire, is that 2021 is likely to be one of the mildest summers we will ever experience. OK, uh, well, there we leave it for now. John, thank you as always for joining us in studio. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram, tonight VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 